0: In the fastest growing cities in Canada, with the hottest real estate markets, we're building condos, many of them. Doing so is driving our growth and our appeal. These condos are more likely to be in walkable, transit oriented neighborhoods than the typical suburban form seen in many mid-sized cities. As a result, they appeal to both young and old who are interested in foregoing a car seeing a car as an unnecessary expense, and in some instances, as a burden. But some, disparagingly, refer to these condos as glass boxes in the sky. When I hear this, it's always said with some disdain, like these are not real homes with real people, with real families living in them. The implication is that these glass boxes are unpleasant places, either by material, glass, shouldn't homes really be brick or size the fact that they are small or tall hence the in the sky reference or to some the form seems to be an issue that is a condo a a part of a larger entity as opposed to a single unit on a single lot That, of course, was the accepted image of a home in post-war North America. In the 1940s, over 30,000 wartime houses, or also known as victory homes, were built in Canada. Small and nondescript, with pitched roofs and a practical layout, they were often made with relatively cheap materials and plunked in a predictable line on even cheaper land. They were designed to house veterans and wartime workers. I have no idea as to whether they were vilified at the time, but today they are treated with a certain nostalgia. History is often forgiving, particularly on streets where the trees have matured. A symbol or a byproduct of the war, these homes were considered an acceptable representation of home. But it's important to remember that the very notion of a home, what a home should be, who should live there, has never been constant. For example, we could ask, how did families in 1920 England live? Okay, that might seem a little bit random, but I have to confess that I chose 1920s England because I am a Downton Abbey fan. I was mesmerized by the stepping back into the past and seeing the way the people lived not that long ago. We not only know that the aristocratic extended families tended to live together to the extent possible, we also know that those further down the British social hierarchy were much less likely to live with their families, particularly if they were house servants. Maybe this was different for farming families who worked on an estate, I guess my point being that families have always lived in a variety of different circumstances, in a variety of different configurations. But importantly, over the life of the show, you know, going back here to Downton Abbey, we see that the politics, social norms, and family configurations were in fact constantly changing. So this brings us to 2016. What is a home? What should it look like? How should it be designed? And how should our cities be designed to accommodate the needs of families? I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. For this episode, I had the great pleasure of sitting down with Adrian Crook in a Vancouver studio to talk about raising his five kids in his condo. So... Adrian, just to start off, describe where you live. What does it look like?
1: Where I live, uh, I live on the 29th floor of a condo in downtown Vancouver in a neighborhood called Yaletown, which is sort of an old textile district, but it's been sort of a she-she, uh, you know, people with small dogs in purses place for uh, <laughs> a couple decades now at least. And uh, we live on the 29th floor there, me and uh, my five kids. And it's a 1,053-square-foot condo with a very small balcony.
0: Okay, so let's hold it there. You heard that right, folks. (laughs) Uh, With your five kids. Uh, You don't actually hear that too often nowadays, five kids. But then hearing five kids... In our condo is, you know, sort of makes people's heads spin. Uh, I had the great opportunity just prior to this interview of taking a little bit of a look around your condo. And I have to say, I almost felt a bit ashamed (laughs) because I have two kids, a lot of space, and all I kept thinking was, my goodness, I have so much crap in my life.
1: <laughs>
0: Describe what it's like right inside your space. How do you do this? How does this work? Five kids in one condo.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm uh, a bit of a minimalist. I don't know. If you, you might think I've been robbed if you came. You came and look at my place. Basically, it's <laughs> it's a little bit empty. Um, but we like to keep things uh, pretty pretty clean because it you know cuts down on what we need to maintain. Uh, so. Everything sort of has its place in our condo and we have an in-suite storage unit that because it's mostly empty, we've converted to an art room for the kids. Uh, we make pretty judicious use of space and we're not the only, there's one other five kids, one condo family down to, in downtown Vancouver that has moved to the city since, uh, since we have and we hang out with them often and they make do in 900 square feet if you can believe that. So
0: That is amazing. So tell me this, um, are there lots of families in your condo or are you an outlier?
1: No, not at all. Uh, Our condo was built in 1994, which in Vancouver terms is practically a heritage building. (laughs) (laughs) There's not a lot of history in Vancouver, in downtown Vancouver at least. Uh, So, that building being built in 1994, I believe there aren't even one bedroom units in our building. So, it's all two bedrooms or two bedrooms and den, and ours is a two bedroom and den or solarium. Uh, And so, as a result, there are about 50 or 60 kids in our building, which is about a 30, 30 story building with about six units per floor, so they're very generously sized units uh, that allow for families.
0: So, livability, you know, that operates or happens on a variety of different levels. There's the space you live within, your personal space, your condo unit. There's the building. There's the neighborhood. It happens at all of these different scales. So, what I'd like to do is maybe just begin at the first scale and then peel back the layers around how you actually make this work, whether this is something you would recommend, whether you think this is a broader trend. <laughs> I, I also want to talk a little bit about your kids and their perspective. and. Yeah and how you think this is shaping them as as people. So let's just talk about about your space. Five kids, uh, this is a three-bedroom condo. How does that work? Where do you put the little people?
1: Mm -hmm. In order to make it work, you have to create spaces that have multiple uses, like day and night uses. You don't have bedrooms that just get used for sleeping. You have bedrooms that can also be destinations during the day. So... The girls' bedroom, which is a solarium, um, but it's you know got hardwood flooring, in it whereas a lot of Vancouver solariums have tile and they feel very austere. This feels more like a bedroom that just happens to have two walls made of glass, and is you know reasonably sized. They have a bunk bed where the bottom bunk converts to a desk, uh, so during the day they can sit there and you know play on their computers or um, you know do homework at that desk. And the boys' room similarly has a a sofa bed that they can sort of spin around to play PS4 at, or they can (laughs) unfold it to have a friend sleep over. So, and my bedroom also has like a Murphy bed desk combination, um, and I can put that completely up so that the kids can play in that area on a big open carpeted floor. So you really have to create these other destinations in your condo. So... If when we do that, or when I, you know, as a result of having done that, now when I have people over, like say that other five kids one condo family, so there'll be ten kids in our condo, my condo, <laughs> yeah, totally.
0: Ah. <laughs> but we've
1: we've sat there and had like wine, you know, the three adults, uh, myself, and the and the couple that comes over. We sat there and had like wine and cheese evenings in relative silence because everyone else is are in those bedrooms uh, doing you know activities or in the art room, the converted store in-suite storage units. So if you do it right, it can feel quite spacious.
0: Well, you know, I have to just put my city planner hat on here for a moment because in some ways you're doing in your condo space exactly what 21st century urbanists are trying to do in the city. The old model was saying, this is where we work. Yeah. This is where we sleep, this is where we recreate, and there were big distances and those uses were spread out. And it was really inefficient because essentially, if you think of the traditional suburb, All day long, the toilets don't flush, there's no one on the roads, the neighborhood isn't being used in any way all day long, nine to five, and then it's completely infiltrated with activity, uh, and then everyone goes away again. And the 21st century city is about using spaces much more effectively and recognizing that it's actually inefficient to have single use spaces. You've taken that broader idea and you've Translated it right into your personal space Mm -hmm. in a really dynamic way. Uh, One of the things that struck me about walking through your condo, well, first of all, the fact that it was, it well, felt so spacious, uh, which is you know a testament to your minimalism. (laughs) Uh, I was dripping with envy. I was thinking, how do I do this? How do I do this? This doesn't, you know, was was really very inspiring. But I just have to say. The space that is your bedroom slash your office is really quite fascinating because you walk in and it feels like a beautiful modern office, mm, yeah. but in fact that's the space where you also sleep and change yeah. and do all these other do all these other things. Yeah. Uh, are there points of tension in having to manage those transitions? You know, some of us, you know, I'm not going to name names, don't make our bed in the morning, but for you, you have to make the bed and put the bed up against the wall and kind of reconstruct the room. Uh, is there an inconvenience in making this kind of a choice?
1: Well, I don't have a particularly ornate bed. I mean, I didn't have a chance to flip it down and show you, but <laughs> it's it's pretty, you know, minimalist. So, sort of fl- throwing up the covers and putting the pillows up allows me to just flip it right up and put the desk down, or not put the desk down and have the that open area for kids or just to keep things clean and tucked away. So I don't view it as a big uh, imposition, and plus I need to often convert that room to my office use because you know, when the kids are outside that door, <laughs> and that door locks, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> for you know, day and night uses, you need that door to lock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but certainly when you're working, you, you know I can lock that door so they have to at least knock before getting in, and uh, and that's how I can get work done in the evening if I need to work when they're around in the evening. Uh so it's really because I work from home, and there's not really a lot of choice. I have to convert that uh, space into usable space for office uh, rather than leave the bed down. And I probably do that about five days a week.
0: So let's talk a little bit about you know your minimalism um, because clearly you couldn't do this if you're if you collect a lot of crap, yeah. right? Because yeah. there's just not space for that. But there's certain things that you must have as a parent, and when you've when you've got one kid or two kid or five kids every one of those children needs shoes yep. and coats and when the weather gets cold hats and mitts car seats and car seats all those all those things that need a home in your space and preferably they're not sitting on your your <sighs> table where you're eating dinner because there's nowhere else to put them how do you manage that when you're at peak volume? Everybody's home. There's shoes and coats and and knapsacks and lunch bags and all these things. Need a spot to go, but you're, you know, in this relatively conspined space. And we should actually mention how many square feet is your condo? Just one thousand fifty-three.
1: So one thousand
0: fifty-three. So that gives a a little bit of a sense to those that are listening. Um, So what about all that stuff that even if you are a minimalist, uh, you're going to have these things that are required as part of everyday life for six people in a small space?
1: Yeah. Well, you didn't see some of them. Uh, I mean, they were sort of tucked away. So uh, the you know the car seats, there are a couple of car seats in there. We don't have a car. So whenever we go and use a car share, which isn't very frequent because we um, we take the bus everywhere, so bus passes don't take up too much room. Uh, <laughs> but then we've got to, you know, schlep those seats with us to put them in the car. And it's not really that big an imposition. If you think about, You know, if you had a car, is it just being used to store those seats so you don't have to carry it to the car every single time? It doesn't make any sense. It's a very expensive storage space. So, you know, we tuck those things away. Uh, One of the car seats is under the girl's bed, so you didn't see that one. Um, (laughs) But uh, it, w- we've also done some things, and I always say we as if the kids are helping me build these things, but <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> I, I guess. It's very generous. <laughs> yeah, it's like the royal we. Yeah, very generous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but w- we have that, um, that entryway closet that you saw with the, sort of the double, bifold yes. doors, very sort of 90s, you know, mirrored doors or whatever. And w- I had uh, a friend of mine who's a, a carpenter build uh, a built-in there that very much resembles like a kid's um, school cloakroom. You know, so you have Mm -hmm. one row of cubbies at the bottom and then, uh, you know, a row of hooks for them to put their backpacks and jackets on and then a much higher uh, bar for adult jackets. And so you really have to go out of your way to where necessary, build that kind of vertical, very optimized storage, because otherwise, you know, that when they certainly when they do come in, as let's say after school, that area becomes just a, you know, a huge mountain of backpacks and jackets and and shoes until I pay someone twenty five cents to clean the closet, you know,
0: which
1: happens. <laughs> well, you know,
0: um, I don't want this to diverge into a conversation about parenting, no. although it very easily could, <laughs> because right. I'm, my curiosity is piqued. Uh, however. Um, what do you do, I guess, is there just, is, is it just not an option to walk in the house and drop your knapsack in the hallway because everyone's going through the hallway constantly mm-hmm. because it's a central part yeah. of the living space. So, does this instill a certain kind of discipline um, in your children? I have a very big problem, I will confess this, um, <laughs> with a certain child who walks in the house and manages to dump her jacket on the floor, like <laughs> like the floor is where it belongs. Yeah. It's been an ongoing saga. I even took a her- coat away in the middle of winter for a week once, um, because I was at my wit's end, uh, which she, you know, questions that to this day. But I guess that's just simply not an option because everyone's going to be flipping over it in your condo.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, those jackets and backpacks on the floor might persist there for about half an hour until they have to get cleaned up. Or if everyone's coming in from, you know, we often wind up at the beach. They're, you know, downtown beaches just like in Toronto, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, fountains, they'll play anywhere with water even if you're not supposed to be in a public fountain <laughs> they'll come back soaked head I'm to not going to say anything. Yeah, I know, it's not great, but hey. Um... And so we, you know, we come back soaking wet. So sometimes I'll make them, get, you know, take off, not clothes, but like shoes and stuff like that in the hallway, at least as a, another right, staging right. area. Right, Oh, that's but, good. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
0: so that's just, you know, one more kind of question about, um, well, two, I guess, inside the condo. One is um, you're just past the stroller stage.
1: We've been past the stroller stage for quite a while. Like I think before the youngest was two and now he's four and a half. Uh, that's when we got rid of the stroller. So
0: did you have the stroller in the condo?
1: Yes, there was a stroller in the condo, uh, and I'm trying to remember what type of stroller. It was more like the uh, umbrella stroller, right, right, because those fold up smaller than. Uh, and again, this is hardcore parenting conversation. Sorry yeah. about that, but yeah, they definitely fold up smaller than like a you know a Bugaboo or some very larger.
0: Well, it's funny you say that because the Bugaboo's build is the urban stroller, right? It yeah. was a reaction to these strollers that kind of had cup holders and big baskets and, you know, all, <laughs> but all the But the
1: Bugaboo is like $1400. It's for people that <laughs> have one kid. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah maybe <laughs> and maybe. don't know
1: any better, you know, in terms of like you don't have to spend fourteen dollars Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: But you know, it's funny, it it may seem like a tangential thing to yeah. talk about the stroller, but in reality, when you choose to live in an a, an urban environment, Uh, And you have small children, your stroller is a critical part of everyday life. You use it multiple times throughout the day. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're throwing it in the trunk of your car in order to go to the mall. Mm -hmm. You're using that stroller to get to and from daycare, dinners, when you're doing your groceries. And one of the things we've heard in the city of Toronto is that stroller parking is a really big problem for families living in condos. You know, We've heard crazy stories where people say, yeah, there's nowhere to put it, so we get into the unit and we don't want to be stumbling over it, so we put it in the bathtub.
1: Yeah, I've definitely heard that bathtub. I've, I'm fortunate enough to have that in-suite uh, storage room that's just a windowless tiny area that's meant for you to just dump a bunch of junk into. And uh, I had some space in there that I could put it in there. I've seen people leave it in the hallways before, which isn't very ideal, obviously.
0: Yeah, fire safety issues, I'm sure. So um, that was the second kind of last question about in suite, the piece that really jumped out at me, is uh, that you do have this little storage, this windowless little storage (laughs) room. But you've done something very special in that room. And, you know, I've got a lot more space than you do, but I don't (laughs) have the special room you have. Tell our listeners about that special space.
1: So in Vancouver, and I'm sure it's the same in Toronto, um, you have a storage associated with each condo. And sometimes it's a little chicken wire unit on P1 or P2 um, that's obviously not super useful aside from storing stuff. You can't put kids in it. Uh, But we're fortunate enough to have our storage unit in the actual... This building was designed with them sort of in-suite storage units. There are no parking level storage units. And it's, like I said, windowless, but it has a linoleum floor and very unfinished walls. So that's where they can go to paint and be, you know, I've opened the door before and the two girls have been just stark naked, covered head to toe in red paint. They're <laughs> like, okay, just, I'm going to carry you stay into there, the bath. Stay there, <laughs> Don't move. <laughs> yeah, but they can do that in there and I'm, I'm not flipping out because, you know, the rest of the condo is being trashed.
0: Well, I love that because it's almost like, just like you've done all these other things on a micro scale, you've got a basement. Mm-hmm. Right? Like yeah. that's what, you know, in the 70s anyway, that's what we did in the basement, right? You went in the basement and they were, you know, sometimes you had what was called a rec room precisely for that. You know, it was meant to be recreational, but it was also the spot you could sort of wreck. right? Yeah. <laughs> like it was yeah. the place that you could do the things you couldn't do in other places of the house that were perceived to be more precious. And you've even got that yeah. in the context of your condo. I think that's pretty, pretty fabulous. And,
1: and it serves as another room where people can go and find sort of private time away from others. So... That's, you know, sometimes, as you know, with kids, they get a little testy, always being, you know, butted up against one another. And if you need to sort of separate them and put them in different areas with different activities, you need a few different areas to do that. So between my room, the, uh, the art room, the boys' room, the girls' room, am I missing anything? No, the, you know, you've got at least four different areas where you can put kids and then you can basically give them all their own space.
0: Fabulous. Uh, When you need to do it.
1: And so it's very
0: invaluable. Before we leave the the condo unit, um, and it's amazing we've spent so much time in such a small (laughs) space, but um, just tell me about the boys' bedroom, because you've done something special in there that I don't think I've seen before. Tell Hmm. us about that.
1: So I have three boys and two girls. And uh, when I first put the boys in that room, I had a regular IKEA bunk, you know, this sort of uh, plain, I think it's pine or something, bunk that you'd buy at Ikea and then a crib, if I remember correctly, for, yeah, it must have been for a little while for the youngest one. But then your floor space is really eaten up. I mean, you you saw the size of that room. You have, you know, if you have a bunk and a crib in there, you have this tiny little channel between them and that's about it. So you're changing diapers on the floor in between two beds <laughs> not a lot of room for people, people to walk around you. So the first opportunity I got uh, to move that youngest guy out of his crib which he was ready for, you know, obviously really quickly because he's the fifth of <laughs> five kids. <laughs> right. You know, just, I want to be in that big bed. Uh, I had that same carpenter friend of mine that built that built-in for the for the closet. Build a uh, triple bunk, so a triple bunk out of those two of those IKEA bunks. He, it's not as simple as just sort of splicing them together. He had to do a lot of custom work, and I doubt he'd ever do it again. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know, the total cost was vastly less than buying a. Uh, A triple bunk, sort of, uh, from a you know a store where it would be thousands of dollars, and and uh, we're fortunate enough to have slightly higher ceilings. I think they're nine foot ceilings. Yeah, well, that's
0: what struck me because I knew you had three in there, and when I saw it, I was like, hey, those are nine foot. It's not like there's you know really really tall ceilings. Have you been up on that third bunk? How's uh, what's it like up there? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's yeah, great. Yeah. Neat.
1: Yeah. And that, the oldest sleeps up there, and but that doesn't stop them all from scaling the face of it and using it almost like a rock climbing wall, that whole bunk. It's <laughs> you know, Get down from there. <laughs> They're kids.
0: They figure it out. That's yeah. a, that's actually a good thing. So that's the condo. Let's talk about the rest of the building. Is there something special about the rest of the building that actually makes this the right place for five kids? Are there amenities? Is it the management? What what actually makes it work in this building? Actually, I'm assuming it works
1: yeah it's a uh, I mean I think it does work uh, it could be a heck of a lot better and that's something to to talk about but when we moved back uh, from Mexico we lived in playa del Carmen for a few years and the kids all learned to swim there and spent obviously every single day in water so when I was looking for a condo for us to live in after moving back I needed a pool and that was that's the number one amenity and Vancouver has rainy winters. You have mm-hmm. snowy winters. <laughs> uh, either way, using the outdoors is not always a a lock in the mm-hmm. winter. So you need somewhere for kids to burn off energy. And that pool on the ground floor of the twin buildings—we just have to walk across a courtyard—is uh, invaluable. I can sit sit on the edge on my phone if I want, and uh, and they can play there for two or three hours, no problem, burning off energy. So.
0: Oh that's amazing. Magic. That yeah. is that is absolutely magic, you know, and it's funny. This is about trading off the public spaces, the private space for the the more public spaces or the semi-public spaces. It's very mm-hmm. interesting because um you know, I have an 11-year-old son and we had a few pretty severe winters right in the heart of his childhood and he comes home from school and he's been sitting at a desk all day and he's very sporty and very athletic and he just needs to go play basketball go into a pool but it's an ordeal and one of the challenges that you know we have with our local recreation centers is that the spaces are all programmed yeah so you can't just kind of drop in like wow this kid really needs to burn energy but amazingly, here you are, you're in a condo, you're living in a smaller space, but you have this incredible benefit, which is that you have access to a pool mm-hmm. every every day of the year. How often are you down there?
1: Uh, I would say a couple times a week now, but in the winter it'll get much more frequent. Obviously, we've had a great summer here for the most part, so uh, we were mostly out in parks and on bikes and that sort of stuff. But for me, my day job is actually designing... Um, Uh, designing apps and games. And a big thing uh, when you're trying to get people to use apps and games is usability and and, uh, reducing barriers to entry. And what I've noticed about me and my kids in our personal lives is if there are any barriers to accessing something, like you have to drive to a pool or all of a sudden figure out a particular schedule, you just won't do it. I mean, we're all so busy that... If it's not right in front of us and really easy, we probably won't do it. And that's the whole theory of w- why I live downtown and don't have a car and have traded off the, the, you know, the large space for the small space because it's all about accessibility. And we can you know, walk across the street to that coffee shop. We can go to the you know, the store, the, the grocery store right across the street. We can go to the pool you know, and just in the other building. Everything is right there. So your excuses not to do things are vastly fewer. And as a result, you do way more things.
0: You do way more things. So this is interesting. We've kind of skipped ahead and we're talking Sorry. about the neighborhood. <laughs> the but, built that's yeah. but that's a good yeah. thing. But that's a good thing because that's where that's where this is really ultimately going. Um because I think there's a common um perception or myth that you have to give something up mm-hmm. in order to raise your kids in a vertical place. And really the narrative in a lot of cities is, well, you know. If you can't afford to live in the suburbs, if you can't, that it's a second choice as opposed to being exactly the opposite, that this is a choice. Living in an urban environment is the preference as opposed to something that people got wedged into, kind of like we're backed into a corner, we have no other choice, oh brother, we're going to have to figure out a way to raise our kid in this condo or our kids in this condo, and. The story that you're telling is actually something quite different mm-hmm. and it's compelling in the fact that it upsets, it upends a whole series of assumptions about what makes for a happy family life. And I'll, you know, I can see that you're just like dying <laughs> to launch into this conversation. So I would love to just hear from you about this as a preference. This isn't something that is in fact your second choice. This is your first choice option for how you want to raise your kids.
1: Yeah, you can tell I'm dying to talk about this. Guy. <laughs> like, and this is the probably the number one thing I try to express on my Five Kids, One Condo blog. Uh, it's very much a here's why we're doing this versus, uh, you know, dad tips or something uh, like that. Uh because I, I do think it's the preferential choice. I've had the big house in the suburbs with the kids and you know walk past rooms we haven't used in a week and you know gotten mad that I have to like, you know, commute into work and I get home just before my kids go to sleep, and now I've got to spend time worrying about maintaining this house versus maintaining relationships. Like there are a lot of things that are backwards with that standard narrative um, that if you really unpack it and and figure out what makes you happy. It's, you know, you, you should be living where you work. You should be preferencing spending time with your kids versus spending money on them or buying them things. Um, these aren't really things that we're taught. We're sort of taught to consume more than we are to cut down or pare down and focus on um, the immaterial. So not to get too philosophical, but <laughs> that's essentially, you know, what I've done, I don't have a commute. Um, I'm there for my kids. I you know when they go to school, I'm there for, for them when they come back it can be maddening at times spending that much time with five kids as a single dad but
0: <laughs> so you know but this is this is a really important part of the story that you're telling right now um and it's an important part of the story to tell uh more broadly and you know you've probably noticed i'm going a little bit quieter here and for a simple reason i'm going to tell you a little secret um which is that my husband who sort of has to worry about um cleaning out the troughs in our mid Midtown Toronto home. Ugh, right. <laughs> he used to worry about he he ends up worrying about those things about the house that I don't worry about. Yep. He has long been an advocate of raising our family in a condo. Oh. And um and he's been an advocate precisely, I think, for a lot of the reasons that you're stating, that it's actually about thinking about the way we live in the city in a, in a very different way. And what's interesting is that I think a lo- so much of this has to do with you know mainstream societal values, right? Mm-hmm. The images that we are raised with, and if you you know if I look back at my mother a generation ago, uh, you know my mom met my dad, and she had this image of getting a house in the suburbs with a big property, and she would peacefully raise her four daughters uh, in suburban bliss um, and in fact she quickly discovered that that made her a bit crazy that she was you know she loved us dearly I'm absolutely sure of that but she was bored stiff mm-hmm. she was completely bored stiff so look at the next generation that's me my mother with my sisters and I was very um, clear in advocating that we should have careers and a a life outside of the home that you know it's challenging to actually pare down your world so small and so that has influenced the way that we've thought about our families and thought about our housing choices well here you are actually introducing a whole new set of values once again Um, and sometimes those values and those choices Um, they may seem like they're really they're they're very very personal but the reality is they do play out in terms of the landscape of the city Mm -hmm. they play out in terms of the kind of homes that we build and create as well as the kind of homes that we subsidize as a society Oh yeah, because we've spent a generation subsidizing suburban homes with the assumption that people are going to own a car and have a long commute because as a society we've had an idea about what a family should look like and how a family should function. And we've also had an idea in our minds about what families want. And you're sitting in front of me today and saying, well, hold on a minute. I actually have a very different idea as to what makes for a happy life. And it doesn't quite look like that idea that existed a generation ago. And we we really need to be talking about this because there's a risk that we don't plan our cities in such a way as to accommodate the kinds of choices that you've made. And you've been able to make the choice that you have made, in part because some of the planning policies that were brought into play in Vancouver under Larry Beasley as the director, co-director of planning, where there was an intentional strategic mandate around ensuring that families had a choice to live in the city. And really, we're just kind of catching up in the city of Toronto, and there's other cities in the world that have done this for generations and generations Um, Uh, particularly in European cities, and then there's other cities where the idea of raising a family in a condo is like some sort of heresy, you know, (laughs) so there's, we're all over the place Mm -hmm. on, on this, but I think in the Canadian context, you know, you're kind of at the fore of advocating for something that is very different than the assumptions that we had a generation ago. Yeah. Do you want to, you know, kind of unpack oh, that a little bit? Wow,
1: there's a lot there. I stopped taking notes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you got me on a tangent. <laughs> no, you're, inspi- you're inspiring me. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a,
1: there's a lot there. And and the single-family zoning that you sort of hinted at there, that where uh, where a lot of our policy is geared towards one ideal of a type of home, is, is exactly the heart of the problem that we keep coming up against uh, repeatedly in sort of city planning meetings here, uh, a few of us formed a group here called Abundant Housing Vancouver specifically to lobby for uh, smart density in, uh, w- in within Metro Vancouver on, uh, with regard to certain projects. My bent is more secured uh, rental housing than it is condo ownership, um, but nonetheless, you know, in all forms, what 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 these projects have in common is they come up against a lot of resistance from neighborhood groups uh, when they go in front of planning. Um, Uh, in front of council for planning meetings because of this built-in single-family zoning assumption. Every time we're having to sort of overturn this single-family zoning to get multi-family density sort of projects uh, done. And um, it's it's very time-consuming and frustrating to have to do this on a spot zoning basis as opposed to just taking a, a broader view of planning in this city where we have neighborhoods like The entire west side, which are just, you know, mansions and, Mm -hmm, you know, very large homes on very large lots and that are, and they're only zoned for that. And that's our best land. That's stuff right by UBC. So it should be, there should be students living there instead of having to travel via the Broadway corridor from farther away places like Burnaby. Um, and so that's the kind of stuff that we need to get smarter about in the city. So we've done a lot of things right, you know, that type of, um, where we live downtown is a great example, Yale Town, especially about a family-oriented, uh, high-density neighborhood. But you you cross a bridge in Vancouver, and you know that could be anywhere. It could be you know as soon as, soon as you're you know outside of that Vancouver downtown peninsula that a lot of people call Vancouverism, it's now single-family mm-hmm. housing mm-hmm. and major arterials and you know, Strodes, if you will. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. It's very
0: similar to the form in, in many cities and yeah. in Toronto as well. You have a very dense core and then it there's very little transition and boom, you get into a completely different, mm-hmm. a different typology that actually takes up a lot of space. That it other, does. That it's other typology. It's extremely
1: inefficient. And, and sort of going back a little bit to your, to your sort of earlier points, uh, the reason we have all these, uh, you know, this sort of single family ideal is, you know, we had... This sort of advent of cars that allowed us to live further away from from where we worked. And then we thought it was a great idea to build houses. And these are this just this just this sort of temporary blip in humanity's scale where we did used to live in fairly compact Absolutely. little villages, you know, and then and then we just had this sort of momentary lapse of reason where we decided that we could just live super far away in these little castles of our own. And now we've got to pull that back a little bit. And the problem is, you know, that's a huge amount of built environment to try to like walk that back and and make some of these outlying cities sort of. You can't just suddenly turn them into walkable cities overnight. It's a lot of planning and and now a lot of built-in assumptions about how land should be used and a lot of people with uh, vested interest, maybe their retirement sort of savings tied up in houses that they don't want the you know, the value impinged upon with your high-density development, so...
0: It's complicated. It's very complicated. It's it's very complicated. And, you know, really thinking about how we can transition... Uh, our most suburban places, to have housing choice, Mm -hmm. both in terms of ownership and rental, in terms of larger units and smaller units, as opposed to only low-density residential. I actually believe that's the planning challenge of our era. Mm -hmm. I really do. The vast majority of Canadians, I think it's something like 86%, live in suburbs. So, you know, transitioning. And it also demonstrates... From my perspective, it's also the biggest opportunity of our era because those are communities that already have roads, that already have infrastructure, that are relatively inefficient because they're so low density. And if we can figure out ways to gently transform them to accommodate housing options and housing choice, that's going to be a critical part of unlocking becoming a more sustainable country in, yeah. from, from my perspective. You've hinted a little bit at um, being there in the morning, being there at the end of the day. Uh, the long commute is foreign to you. Mm-hmm. It's not a part of your life. No. You, it's just not a part of your everyday life.
1: So, a big part of how I live my life is driven on data. <laughs> you know, I'm a bit of a left brain kind of logic nerd. So, there are, there are a host of studies I know you're familiar with about you know the effect of a commute on your happiness and how much more you need to earn. I think it's like forty percent more if you commute an hour a day. You need to earn forty percent more to be as happy as someone who walks into work. Uh, so, you need only look at those kind of stats to realize what kind of trade off you should probably be making. You know, if if people only, there's this sort of prevailing wisdom that you take the highest paying job you can and then you drive as far out as you need to to be able to afford something. And then that's the best combination of like the best of all worlds. I've got a big house and a high paying job. But if you looked at what it's costing you in terms of happiness, but in a more concrete sense, you know, running a car or two and, you know, what that costs in, uh pre-tax income, but then also include the cost of your time. Nobody ever includes the cost of their time in these mathematical calculations about what's worth it and what's not. So just pay yourself an hourly rate you know, akin to what your employer would pay you and load that up and figure out that you can probably take a, a much lower-paying job close, you know, maybe in the suburbs and have a way better quality of life uh, and, and still come out you know, ahead if you're really honest about it. Um, but we're not really programmed to do that. So...
0: We're, we're not, it's very interesting because it really comes back to, I think, a series of um, uh, myths that we've all kind of bought into. And one of them is around around household costs. And we tend to think of housing cost as opposed to household cost. Mm-hmm. And when you bring together household cost with your or housing cost with your transportation cost, and your utility cost for having a larger home. that's mm-hmm. a big implication as well. Big home, lots of rooms to heat, lots of rooms to air condition. a smaller space that has a lower transportation cost, you can actually, you know, have a, more expensive place in the center city and in fact have an overall household cost that is entirely manageable or within the same the uh, same envelope or income envelope. And I think one of the challenges that we face and, you know, millennia, millennials might be smarty pants when it comes to this because they've sort of figured this out and said, you know what? Like, forget the car. I'm not going to own a car. Uh, it's going to be a little more expensive to live downtown, but I don't need to own a car. I'm just going to use Uber or Cardigo, car to go, or I'm also going to use cycling and walking as my main form of transportation. And making those trade-offs is actually, at the end of the day, going to make me happier. Mm-hmm. The question is, Can we get the housing right in those urban environments to actually deliver on the promise? And this is what we're struggling with in the city of Toronto, as an example. Same here. You know, trying to make sure that we have schools. Uh, I told someone I was coming in to speak with you in Vancouver, and I said that Vancouver was so much farther ahead of Toronto in, in this regard. And he said to me, are you kidding me? Uh, I live downtown, and my kids have to take a bus to school because there's no schools nearby. And uh, kind of he he broke down the rosy image that I had, quite frankly. And I realized, wow, we actually aren't quite at that point in Toronto. We're building some new schools. But I do know we have a problem that families typically move out in the downtown when their kids start to hit five or six years old. And one of the key drivers is schools. And you really can't have this conversation about living, In urban environments without actually going back and tracing the whole narrative around schools. Because if there aren't great schools nearby, unless you're one of the few people that's planning on homeschooling, it's just not on. Uh, How's that worked for you, the whole school dynamic?
1: And that other five kids one condo family I mentioned, uh, they they do homeschool. They school. do
0: homeschool. Yeah. So there you go.
1: Yeah, and it, us personally, the kids go to school in North Vancouver, which is across a bridge. So I've taught them how to use the bus on their own, and you know that's a great independence and. You know, I won't get started on that, but the, uh, yeah. So yeah. that's how the they access. The school is a big thing. Yeah, and there's a new school being built near to us, like in our particular catchment. It's going to be a, you know, it'll be full from day one, obviously. But uh, um, that's an elementary school, like a K through seven school. But we do have a problem generally with uh, like a lack of available schools uh, in the well in the downtown area and school closures outside of those areas for sort of government. Planning reasons.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, in some ways, though, you know, just to 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 walk it back a little bit. um, In some ways, you know, there's the whole model: build it and they will come. You build a school and there's no kids, and then people have the choice. Mm -hmm. And in most instances, in most Canadian cities, we do it the other way around, right? We build the infrastructure afterwards, particularly in in infill environments. And I know that's the way we do it in Toronto, and it has to do with our funding model and the way we fund. Um, But it's in some ways the fact that the new school being built in downtown Vancouver that's going to be full on day one is that's part of the success story because it's demonstrating that families, uh, more families are in fact making that choice. You know, the pennies kind of dropping and to me it is about choice. There are some families that will never under any circumstance want to raise their kids in a a condo and I think we need to have diversity of choice and it seems like if that school will be open on day, will be full on day one, there's a lot more families that are making that choice as a result of the municipality providing the right amenities than one would have expected.
1: Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's, it's speaking mostly to uh, the untapped need for a school in that particular location where right now kids are going further afield who happen to live in that neighborhood and have, their parents have lived in that neighborhood for a while and they just haven't moved, but what's also happening in Vancouver and has become way more acute in the last few years is obviously real estate, you know, like everywhere has gone crazy, but Mm -hmm. uh, rental in particular, which used to be, we used to have fantastic um, uh, price-to-rent ratios, which meant renting was just like a far better deal, and it still is a far better deal than owning if you you don't believe in owning as a lottery ticket like many people do, Um, but the rents have gone crazy. So I pay $2,200 a month for my Thousand square foot condo. If I got kicked out of that, um, you know, I'm renting. If I got kicked out of that tomorrow, I th- I could expect to pay three thousand to thirty five hundred dollars.
0: Wow, a big yeah. jump,
1: huge jump, because that's just what's happened in the market. So obviously, housing security for families who rent is a huge topic. We don't have enough uh, purpose built rental. We don't have enough co ops. Uh, co ops are a fantastic model that. You know, I don't know if there's been new funding for co-ops in a few decades, so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so there are, you know huge wait lists for those. So I think we have a problem with families in downtown Vancouver. It's you know, it's one of those uh, topics that sort of punches above its weight in terms of how we're actually doing. I think like we get lauded for it a lot when I think we've got there was a survey recently that said that two out of three families anticipated. Leaving uh, the downtown Vancouver area in the next few years because of these affordability issues, and obviously that's intent. It doesn't necessarily mean it will happen. But uh, and I don't intend on leaving because I can do the math and I can figure out, you know, why this is still a better deal for me and for my family, you know, from a three hundred and sixty perspective. But it's still very difficult, and for people that don't have, you know, maybe the funds to to string together a life like that. It's it's very expensive and there's not a lot of security in it. So, so
0: the purpose built rental is a really important part of this conversation. And we've we've of course been through an era, I will say, decades and decades, where purpose built rental has just fallen right off the map, um, as well as, you know, rightly, co-ops are a brilliant model, the co-ops that were created in the 70s are still thriving today, but the government mechanisms, particularly at the federal level, that enabled co-ops have all vanished and disappeared, mm-hmm. and I'm glad you raised that, because I actually think, we we talk all the time in Toronto about the, affordable, the affordability issue and families in the downtown, but we're Usually talking about ownership, yeah. usually, and that's another one of those broader generational assumptions yeah. that is beginning to get upended. Really, does do must we own? And so the role of rental, the role of co-ops and purpose-built rental. Is a big part of the conversation that we need to elevate with respect to families in urban environments. I think if we're actually going to get to that point where we're having a mix of housing types uh, and it is a real choice, a real choice for families. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about rental and security because, Mm -hmm. you know, having five kids, uh, I can see how, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of. A lot of heads on beds. (laughs) You know, the vulnerability of families, I think, is really, really high and whereas a generation ago we the vulnerability of our seniors was a national issue that resulted in all kinds of programs for seniors, we haven't yet built up the, uh, built the momentum around the vulnerability of families uh, when you combine in household costs, you of course have to add into the equation daycare mm-hmm. and you know daycare is a big chunk of change as well for a family so let's actually, have you done some work, some thinking in particular uh, with respect to abundant housing Vancouver mm-hmm. around advancing rental housing for families in dense areas.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, that is my bent personally because, uh, because if you look at, say, a new condo being built in downtown Vancouver right now, I know there's one particular project, I think it's called 8x6. I uh, can't remember exactly the name. It's it's in you know, a few blocks away from us. And the units there start at a million plus so, you know, if if I was looking at, a, say, a three-bedroom unit in a brand-new building to buy, which is crazy, but let's say I was, it'd be a million five. And I, you know, I can't afford that. I don't know many families that can afford that. Those not are not any. really family units. So we've had some policy changes at the city hall level that have increased uh, family-sized um, sort of unit requirements and new developments from 25% to, I think, 37.5%. But that's kind of neither here nor there at those kind of prices. That really... Those policy changes are better felt outside of the downtown peninsula where you start to get into slightly more reasonable prices and even that's probably up for debate. I'm sure you'd be horrified to hear (laughs) some of the prices even on the outskirts.
0: I, I actually don't get it I don't I I hear the prices and I'm just like I just don't get this how does this work I know a little bit about the wages in this city and they're just, not very good they're not that great actually no. the wages are better in Toronto they than they are in Vancouver are. No. so there's this big big gap um with respect to affordability so you know as we kind of wrap up here what I'd like to do is just you know you're you're living the dream in many ways, right? You're, you're doing it. Um, you're there with your kids. You have this really dynamic life. You have this rich relationship with your children because you get to spend so much time with them. Uh it's not uncommon, I think, in most cities for people to not see their kids until seven o'clock at night and mm-hmm. probably miss them in the morning because oh. you're out the door commuting, which yeah. is just, you know, sort of heartbreaking. Um, so you're in so many ways, I think you're living the dream, which is, which is very exciting. If you could m- wave your magic wand, there's policymakers around the world struggling with this issue, uh, affordability in, stable countries uh, with low interest rates um, that are desirable for global capital, that are livable cities like Vancouver, like Toronto. Uh, this is an issue across the globe. This isn't unique to Toronto. It's not unique to... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really something that is being grappled with at a gargantuan scale across the world right now. Um, if you could Wave your magic wand and uh, provoke policymakers to think in a fundamentally different way about providing housing for families. Uh, what would some of that look like?
1: It's similar to what we were talking about with the single-family zoning and the the elevation of the single-family house as the as the ideal, and things like the cap um, capital gains tax exemption, uh, which obviously applies to you know selling your primary dwelling. Just put so much uh, incentive behind owning and owning houses, uh, where we've also dialed back our emphasis on things like co-ops. Uh, I think we need to move away from housing, uh, treating housing like a speculative or an investment sort of opportunity, and more towards a, a public good that everybody's entitled to, and really make serious investments in housing for the public good, uh, secured rental, uh, below market sort of secured rental, um, so that we can guarantee people homes in these environments where we want them to live and work uh, because you can't expect someone to, you know, to live where they work if they can't afford a place to live <laughs> in that particular area. So uh, there's just a g- giant shift that has to happen away from uh, the elevation of the single-family home and, and ownership in general, I think, uh, that hasn't happened yet. And we're in North America, we're really bad for it because, you know, this uh, our average new home sizes are triple that of what they are in the U.K., we just think of our homes as our castle and something we're entitled to, and and home ownership is that thing to aspire to, and uh, and we need to shift away from that.
0: Well, you know, it's funny in the federal the last federal election, there were a few debates on housing affordability, and I was. Uh, A bit astounded to realize partway through the debate with all of the potential leaders that they were all talking about home ownership, Mm -hmm. uh, that the notion of affordable rental wasn't even on the agenda as being relevant to the national dialogue. And of course, it's critical to the national dialogue. Yeah. Uh, well, it absolutely
1: is. We see, for some reason, we still have this pejorative view of people who take transit, of people who rent as if they're second-class citizens. And I love talking about the fact that as a family we take transit, as a family we rent, and these are why we do these things because we have to change this impression. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing the planet a favor by living small, by not owning a vehicle. Like, in a lot of ways, we're you know, we're being pretty responsible and this is something I'm able to show my kids is this is the way, a responsible way to live. And, and if you think about it, you know, our generation has a lower sort of standard of living, I won't say quality of living, than our parents. You know, we don't own big houses and all sorts of toys. Uh, is it realistic to think our kids will have a better standard of living than us? And are they going to suddenly have houses? Probably not. <laughs> I'd love to be optimistic, but they're going to find new ways to live that we haven't even... Thought of yet? They're going to have jobs we haven't even thought of yet. Uh, I want to set them up to be highly adaptable and resilient, and not expect to live in a giant house and have a fleet of private automobiles that they can shuttle themselves around in. Uh, I want to make them more robust than that, and uh, and expect less of. The earth and the you know <laughs> those uh, the the built environment around them so that they can function better in society when they grow up. So
0: well, I'm so glad that you brought it back to your children because really, um, that's you know a big part of what this that's what the story is about. Um, mm-hmm. You're a dad with five children. Um, what about your kids? Uh, do they ever you know do they ever uh, resist uh, being in a smaller space or resist the fact that they're not living in a very different way?
1: Kids, the interesting thing about kids is they only know as normal what's in front of them, you know, and that can be bad in some cases where you have like an abusive household and kids don't know that that's the norm. Right. Yeah, exactly. Or it can be good in as much as you can shape their experiences and they're not going to be like, well, I'm so used to living in a six-bedroom mansion, I would completely reject this ideal. (laughs) Uh, When we first moved downtown, it took some adjustment for the amount of walking Mm-hmm. Um, from a practical perspective, uh, you know there was there was some whining about the amount of walking we did, but now it's just—it's part of everyday life. Yeah, and you know we can walk like eight or ten k in a day, and that's a four. Well, he's been doing that since he's like two or three, but that's a four-year-old on his own, under his own power, walking eight or ten kilometers in a day. You know, the, the health outcomes of being primarily pedestrian-based and in an urban environment are just so much better than driving everywhere, you know. How often do you have to resole your shoes when you're driving into work every single day? <laughs> you know?
0: The health outcomes are are fabulous, but also um, it humanizes a city when there's mm-hmm. children on the street, um, when they know their neighbors. And that actually comes from that pedestrian pedestrian culture
1: when you were talking before about living like an active life uh, versus you know when you move out to the suburbs and and uh, and there's sort of less to do I think you were t- ca- talking about it in the context of your mother and sort of encouraging you to you know get a career and remain active I think one of the things I found when I I for a while lived in North Vancouver before I moved to Mexico for a few years and back when we had just a couple kids and you'd you know, you'd commute home. I was taking the bus back then, so you'd commute home just before the kids got to bed, and then you know put the kids to bed. And if there was something back downtown from a social perspective that maybe it was good for your career, if you could just even attend for half an hour, or an hour, uh, you were very unlikely to go and do that. <laughs> you know, so you'd have all the opportunity cost of living in the suburbs, of living far away from a dense cultural and uh, and professional center. I found. Uh, it's hard to measure them, but I've, I felt them, you know. So now, when I living downtown, as I have now since we moved back from Mexico for a few years, uh, if I need to get a sitter just or have someone in the building come take care of the kids for a couple hours, so that I can pop out to a professional event for even an hour, you know, I've seen the benefits you know, financially, let's say, from my business of being able to get a deal in a very short amount of time, or just if you wanted to, you know, walk a few blocks to the to the theater to see something. Uh, you're just far more likely to do those things that um, that, you know, when you were single and living downtown before you had kids, you you loved to do and then you moved out in the suburbs and it became far less uh, reasonable to be able to do them.
0: Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that because um, you're really talking again about not having a commute, right? Mm -hmm. Things are just right outside your door. You can do it. You can pop back in again. And uh, we've sort of bought into this myth that we need to commute, that yeah. we are going to have to travel long distances to work every day. And it's a, a really interesting exercise to start provoking ourselves to think, what if I didn't need to commute? What if the things that I did every day are right outside my door? And in our successful, our more successful cities, our downtowns that are really taking off and really thriving have acted A bit like a vortex and have sucked in a lot of the cultural amenities and the employment. And that's been a good thing. That's allowed the density and the livability and the complete communities to come to fruition. But really the opportunity, this is the part that I was getting at earlier, the opportunity moving into our next evolution in urban form is thinking about how our suburbs can actually have those same kinds of opportunities right outside the door. And part of that does involve adding that gentle density along corridors or in strategic locations so that they're less single use. And as long as we assume that the long commute is a part of modern life, We sell ourselves short. Yeah. We really rip ourselves off because we assume that it's going to be hard to pop out that opportunity cost that you've mentioned, to pop out to a meeting for an hour and pop back because it's just too much of an ordeal to, yep. to be able to do that. I I was a little bit on the edge of the city, not really. I was in Ronson's in Toronto, but mm-hmm. then I moved to Young and Eglinton in part to be right on the subway. Mm-hmm. And this was a strategic move in our part because we were thinking about our kids, and I was like, you know, people joke, mom's taxi, and I know mothers who do this, who spend hours and hours driving around yep. every day. Oh. Oh, skating lessons, oh. now we're going to drive to skating, now we're going to drive to ballet <laughs> and you know, I obviously never did that gig and my husband never really did it either um, because we made a conscious choice we moved into a walkable neighborhood on the on the subway and even just being 15 minutes from the core meant that I could have different kinds of choices, the popping in and out that I didn't have previously and I'm in a dense urban and very uh, urban area now but we also made a constant, conscious choice where we said, you know what, um after school activities, if they're not within walking distance, we're not doing them.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Like, we're just not,
0: if it's not within walking distance, (laughs) we're not going to do it. And, you know, when we did that, it was really interesting because we we changed the location at the time where my daughter was taking ballet lessons. Mm -hmm. Uh, We decided, um, you know, we made a whole series of different choices, and it's really funny because... I hear the laments sometimes that are rooted in the fact that we've planned our cities in such a way that parents feel like they don't have choice. And I think that's where we've gone wrong in the way we design our communities. We need to design our communities so that people do have the choice to say, you know what? If it's not within walking distance, we're simply not doing it Mm -hmm. because the implication on our family life is too high if during dinner hour we can't sit down and have dinner together because dad's stuck in traffic or Uh mom's stuck in traffic. So there's a really important connection here between creating those complete communities, including in our suburbs, where yeah. there are a diversity of uses within walking distance, and the quality of life that we see.
1: Yeah, in Vancouver, so obviously in downtown Vancouver, we have a huge amount of density in terms of amenities. But if you go even into North Vancouver, you can still find corridors with that with similar types of density. Right. So, like Lonsdale runs. Uh, North south uh, from the water up the mountain there, and there are high density developments that just uh, you know line that road, and everything outside of it falls away to single family right away. But there's you know city hall, the library, swimming pools, rec centers. Uh, so you you know if you position yourself even on that as a family, you could live a very similar type of life to the downtown life we lead. Where over the summer I had you know kids going to three different uh, day camps basically, like five kids going to three different day camps and I didn't have to walk any of them to any of them because they, you know, as a little troop, they would first walk the youngest to one block away to his thing and then you know the other four would carry on a few blocks to their next thing and and then the youngest would carry on to a dock where he'd get on the aqua, or the oldest rather, would carry on to a dock where he'd get on the aqua bus and go across the water into an international village and go to his day camp. So, you know, I mean, that's a nice benefit of also having a larger family of this little protective unit to, to travel along with. But everything's so dense and so close together that um, it relieves you of the need to play taxi. And I refuse to play taxi. If we don't have a car, so it's not an option, but it would result in a lower quality of life for everyone. If, like you said, we're stuck in traffic just to enable... You know, little Jimmy to take skating lessons or what have you. It's not, you know, that's the other reason to teach them how to take a bus. You know.
0: Well, my goodness, um, <laughs> we did the same thing. We we taught uh, we taught we taught my daughter to take the TTC at a pretty young age, and she's a veteran um, of taking the TTC. Uh, and takes it all over the city and actually experiences a tremendous amount of freedom mm-hmm. in the city as a result of that. But it's interesting because the story you just told is about bringing things in close. Mm-hmm. It's not even getting on transit, yeah, right? No, it's it's, this walking. is all within walking distance. About and And that is the gift of density. If we do density really well, we end up in a situation where you do have enough of a critical mass to support, in your instance, three different camps for yeah. three different ages and three different interests yeah, within blocks, you know, within block, within blocks of home. Yeah. Now, I know for a lot of families, one of the biggest constraints to sending their little ducklings. Uh, I have, you know, um, make way for ducklings. Do you know that little story where the the little ducks are walking through the city? It's just this great uh, little 1950s child story. But yeah. as you were telling your story of your your little children puddling yeah. through the city, I kept thinking of make way for ducklings for some oh. reason. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a great little a uh, great little storybook, but. One of the biggest, I think, concerns that many families and parents have when it comes to the kind of portrait that you've just painted is actually about cars. Oh, yeah. And... What about your experience? Uh, You know, are there some big, nasty intersections that the kids need to cross? And, you know, how do you manage that? How do you, you know, boot them out the door in the morning and feel peaceful that they're going to be okay out there in the big, bad world? And to me, the baddest part of the big world is probably getting hit by a really large chunk of steel.
1: Yeah, I... You're totally right. That is my number one concern. Ironically, I think a lot of people's number one concern about kids and independence on transit or in the city is actually misplaced. It's usually around like child abduction or strangers, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. literally like a one in one million
0: mm-hmm. stat,
1: whereas the stat around, uh, you know, like uh, uh, automobile accidents are literally the number one killer of kids aged five to fourteen. About nineteen percent of those are pedestrian, and the rest are. Um, most of the rest are, you know, cars, so about 60% of them are in the vehicles. So, you know, it's still a significant amount of kids that are um, killed and harmed by vehicles. Uh, and how we design our streets is a, is a huge factor there, and I'm really looking forward to um, seeing a lot of the Vision Zero platform implemented in Vancouver. So a, a major component of that is 30 kilometer an hour speed limits in urban environments. That's something that happened. has to happen at the provincial level. That's where speed limits are set. Uh, But, you know, you look at the survivability statistics between 30 and 50 kilometers an hour and it it goes, I can't remember it offhand, but it goes down dramatically from like something like 70% fatality down to about 10 or 15%. So that's a major change. I think, you know, cars are, there's only so much you can do around education. And believe me, I've obviously educated my kids as much as I can. I teach them to stand back from the roads we're crossing. Uh, We had a, a very good example of that the other day when we walked by an accident where a car was right you know right up on the curb and we stopped and chatted with a fireman about you know what had happened and speeds role in that crash and how we always stand back from the road so there's great learning experiences
0: there's great civic awareness uh-huh. being built as you're as yeah. you're going through the
1: but, you know it, d- it definitely makes you feel uncomfortable as a parent like all of it even the transit does even though I know the statistics uh it's it's that urge that that worry we all have about you know letting go of our kids. Um, but the value of teaching them independence uh, and self-reliance should outweigh that. Um, and, you know, it's it's always a battle, but you have to give it a go. Yeah.
0: Um, well, I have to thank you. This has been an absolutely fabulous conversation. I'm inspired. I'm a little worried that when my husband listens to this that <laughs> he's going to be uh, seeing me as a convert. And, uh <laughs> And there might be some changes in my life, imminent changes in my life. Um, but I have to say that uh, you're an inspiration. I, I love what you're doing. Um, you're an inspiration because you have uh, five children, uh, but you're also an inspiration because I think you're just doing a, a, a grace, a gracious, beautiful job of living your values really loudly. And I think that uh, that's, um, we need more of that. So thank you for oh. doing what you do.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. It's been a pleasure.
0: Adrian is the object of my admiration. He's living his values, as he's very willing to point out. He's also a pretty spectacular dad, and I do believe that he is an early adopter. I learned immensely from our conversation. Thank you, Adrian. I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. Invisible City is a product of Lossless Creative produced in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode features an original score produced by Lossless Creative. Could you do us a favor? If you like what you've heard, could you give us a rating or a review? It really will only take a moment and it would mean the world to us. This may come as a bit of a surprise, but Invisible City is co-produced by only Ryan and I. We are a tiny little team and we would love your support. You can find all of our episodes on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com.